I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. I feel very strongly that you know, we do want a world that is safe for democracy. The question is, does that world also need to be one in which other forms of government also are allowed to exist? If not because we want them to thrive, but because the alternative is one in which we are mutually escalating attacks on each other's systems and that nobody feels secure in such a world. China has become the central fixation of U.S. foreign policy. Jessica Chen Weiss, a professor at Cornell, has devoted her career to studying China and its role in the world. But recently, Weiss spent a year on the policy planning staff at the State Department working on U.S. policy toward China. She left in July. Now, in a new essay in Foreign Affairs, she issues a forceful warning. Washington is getting China dangerously wrong. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us and for the important essay you contributed to our current issue. It's called The China Trap, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Perilous Logic of Zero-Sum Competition. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And in congratulations on your centennial issue. It's really fantastic. You've done a great job. Thank you. Well, we're very pleased to have you as part of that. So the essay is forceful and clear and eloquent warning about the course of U.S. foreign policy especially, but given the important academic work you've done over the course of your career on Chinese foreign policy and on U.S.-China relations, I want to start by giving some consideration to how we got to this point of rising tensions and this kind of ever-present risk of crisis. And I want to start not with the American side, which is, of course, the focus of your piece, but with the Chinese side. And you know, what has changed in Chinese foreign policy or what has been revealed about Chinese power over the last couple of decades that have helped drive the change in U.S. policy and set off some of the dynamics that you warn about in the essay? There's a, certainly a, an important component of truth to the fact that China has become you know, much more repressive at home and coercive abroad. And this didn't just start with Xi Jinping. And in the essay, I, you know, look back to, you know, 2008, which was sort of a high point in sort of China's, you know, coming of age story, you know, emerging on the world stage, hosting the Beijing Olympics then in that year. Um, but it was also a time of unrest at home, riots in Tibet and a campaign around the world to criticize really those ongoing human rights abuses inside Tibet at the time. And what we saw is a you know a pretty significant turn away from the kind of halting liberalization or openness to learning from outside ideas. And so there was at the time throughout the you know 80s, 90s, and even into the early 2000s, a more of a willingness to experiment, not national level elections, of course, but you know at the grassroots, a greater openness to learning and borrowing from outside models. And that, you know, really began, I think, to change in 2008 and continuing on afterwards, where there was, you know, accompanying China's growing power in the world stage, but also growing concern and fear about the lessons of the color revolutions and the uprisings in the Middle East. And of course, the really grave concerns about the fall of the Soviet Union and all the sources of that kind of ideological decay from within, all of that gave rise to a really renewed emphasis on kind of political loyalty, making sure that the population inside China was sort of inoculated against Western ideas, you know, bourgeois liberalism. You know, that was sort of the domestic trend. And then internationally, you know, China continued to develop its military capabilities, took you know, very hard lessons away from the 1995-1996 Taiwan Strait crisis in which the United States sent two aircraft carrier groups to the area. I mean, China didn't really have very much that they could do about it at the time. And so, you know, really began a sustained campaign 
to develop China's, you know, conventional and then later kind of nuclear arsenal to keep pace with and ultimately counter U.S. intervention in the region. And so those are the sort of long-term kind of trends inside China and in its foreign policy that kind of set the stage for a lot of the U.S. response, you know, really toward the end of the Obama administration. I mean, it's been really kind of head-spinning how quickly this paradigm has shifted in U.S. foreign policy. And I you can't think of anything other than 9-11 in my career, which seemed like such a kind of precipitous shift in U.S. foreign policy focus. One account of that change is the shift from thinking that diplomatic engagement, trade with China, all of these core components of U.S. foreign policy through the you know 80s and 90s and into the aughts would help make China more liberal and politically when it came to foreign policy. Do you see the collapse of those hopes as the main cause of a change in U.S. foreign policy? Or are there kind of other things that you see as accounting for the shift that has become such a cause for concern as you write in the piece? I think that collapse of those hopes was a part of it, but it certainly was not, I think, the main driver or a bunch of things came together, I think, really during especially the pandemic to get especially extreme. You can look at both sides, I think, in the acute insecurity domestically that the pandemic created, the explosion of COVID-19 in China and the sort of ensuing response in the United States during a presidential election campaign really led to a lot of finger pointing and the kind of embrace on the Chinese side of this wolf warrior diplomacy, which of course had roots prior to that year. But it really, I think, brought into sharp sort of relief, the belief in China that it was imperative that the Chinese government defend and even boast of the superiority of the Chinese political system at a time when it was under so much external criticism. And that external criticism in turn was in part, I think, a political stratagem of the Republicans, particularly the Trump administration, to point the finger at China rather than kind of own up to the botched initial response to the pandemic in the United States. Now, you know, fast forward, we have a much better situation here now with the success of vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, compared with the COVID situation in China, which is just, you know, still stuck in this kind of old zero COVID mentality and lockdown. So, you know, that argument that China did better is, I think, really only kind of relevant to that early first year or so of the pandemic, you know, that I don't think there's any basis for that claim. Certainly not that autocracy somehow did better than democracies. And that is kind of bogus. But at that moment in time, I think it set in motion a kind of downward spiral and unleashing, if you will, of all of those who had wanted to push for kind of a more confrontational relationship on both sides. You see a kind of momentum that has taken over in U.S. foreign policy, really across parties and across administrations that you see as counterproductive and even dangerous. So take us forward a bit from some of these changes on the Chinese side and in the relationship more broadly to what you see as this worrying trend in course for U.S. foreign policy. What did you see when you were in government and as an observer of the relationship more broadly? So I think what the overall sort of climate of competition has created is a challenge for those who want to put forward kind of a positive vision for where we should go, that efforts to do so are seen as sort of insufficiently kind of tough on the challenges, the real challenges that China and others pose around the world. And it also creates, I think, in the broader political context, a need to react to everything that China is doing. I mean, the same is true on the Chinese side. And so I think what you have is kind of an imbalance here a weighting of efforts to compete, confront, and punish the other side, 
rather than thinking of strategically the ways in which if we want to avoid this kind of growing confrontation spiraling toward catastrophe, we're going to have to identify ways to do things in kind of coordinated, if unilateral fashion, to take kind of baby steps back from the brink. Because otherwise, this sort of action-reaction spiral is going to only head in one direction. And that's going to be disastrous for not only the possibility of military conflict, but also kind of the erosion of the already weakened international order, the institutions that have, you know, survived really in various forms since the end of World War II. And so, you know, that's what the international, I think, stage will end up looking like. At home, I really worry about kind of the perverse consequences for the quality of deliberation, tolerance, and dynamism in our own society. Our liberal democracy is really, I think, premised on the idea that you may not agree with me, but I, you and I both defend our right to disagree. And we welcome that, and that's the source of our ability to innovate and also attract people from around the world to our shores. And I think the administration was right to say, as Secretary Blinken did in May, that the United States is lucky when students and scholars come from around the world to the United States to learn and to study and to stay and work. And and that's been long a source of a comparative advantage, but one that I think we risk losing as different voices are either drowned out or made to feel unwelcome as there is absolutely a challenge, a threat that we must deal with in terms of espionage and illicit efforts to steal technology, similarly to guard against efforts to quell academic freedom and freedoms of speech. But the effort to do so in a blanket way, if it ends up you know, hurting this very dynamic and open society, then it will have been counterproductive to those things that we are striving to protect. So there's a lot we'll want to come back to there, but I want to linger on this point you made, which I think is really underlies in some ways the entire analysis and critique of the piece and I'll quote you here, you write, U.S. politicians and policymakers are becoming so focused on countering China that they risk losing sight of the affirmative interests and values that should underpin U.S. strategy. You know, we've been so focused on competing that we forget what we're competing for. As you step back and look at U.S. interests more broadly, how would you define those affirmative values and interests? How should we think of those goals and how should that guide the way we approach the question of competition? So I would put forward three, but this piece was really an invitation for us collectively to think about what really matters to America. What are the minimum interests that we need to defend and protect in the world? I would say the first is avoiding war, avoiding major conflict with a nuclear-armed nuclear competitor. I would say second is making space, both in our budget and in our political conversation, for tackling common challenges, ones that rise to the level of existential, including climate change and pandemics that we're still battling. The third would be our political way of life and our social way of life. So I feel very strongly that we do want a world that is safe for democracy. The question is, does that world also need to be one in which other forms of government also are allowed to exist, if not because we want them to thrive, but because the alternative is one in which we are mutually escalating attacks on each other's systems and that nobody feels secure in such a world. Are there specific things where you think American rhetoric needs to be more restrained, where we need to kind of accept our lack of capacity to really change Chinese policy, whether it's in you know Xinjiang or Hong Kong or elsewhere? What do we need to accept that we can't change? I, mean, I think this becomes the kind of hard part of the debate. 
It is a really hard part. And I think that there's a lot of room for thinking about what kinds of rhetoric as well as what kinds of policies would make a difference to those that we are trying to help. And so, you know, whether it's China's crackdown in Hong Kong or the brutal repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, are there things that we can do to make it easier for, as the, for example, the United Kingdom has done to allow people to come to our shores to resettle and to think about just how effective are the sanctions on Chinese officials and to what extent are they in tension with other objectives, including the Biden administration's statement that we don't seek to transform China. And so figuring out the balance between standing up for human rights and also not trying to change another country's political system. I think there's a wide spectrum there, and it doesn't mean saying we can't do anything. It just means thinking about realistically what are the sets of policies that can move the ball and which are likely to be potentially even counterproductive. And there's a lot of political science research about the backlash effect where you know foreign criticism of human rights practices in another country, particularly when it's from a country that's already seen as geopolitically antagonistic like the United States is to China, that that criticism actually has the opposite effect inside of China in terms of eroding support for concerns about women's rights, minority rights, etc. And so when we think about when, you know, the Chinese Communist Party criticizes, you know, Black Lives Matter, domestic politics and, you know, problems inside the United States, is the reaction here among liberals like, yeah, that's a big problem. It's like, we already knew that we didn't need you to tell us. And in fact, it actually sometimes makes it harder to make progress on those issues, because then others inside that system can say, oh, you're just parroting the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda. He's like, no, no, that's not the case. But the fact that those criticisms are picked up then by the other side, by a geopolitical competitor, make it that much harder to tackle those domestic problems. And I think that logic kind of works in reverse on the Chinese side as well. I want to linger on this very powerful point you made a bit ago and that you make in the essay about the effect of the focus on competition on U.S. democracy and U.S. society more broadly. The first piece of this is the changes in the kind of openness and quality of debate about China policy. You write in the piece, quote, when individuals feel the need to outhawk one another to protect themselves and advance professionally, the result is groupthink. How have you seen the China policy debate change in the course of your work on this, including your time in government? And what about the nature of that debate right now worries you? So I was really struck, you know, just in the last several months, talking to two different folks working in the broader China policy community, not in government, but outside, who told me that they felt the need to position themselves as hawkish as the next person in the room. And otherwise, they feared that they wouldn't be invited to meetings or be as successful in advancing their careers. Another person said they didn't feel that they could criticize some of the products that were coming out of other organizations. Because again, you know, when you exist on, on soft money and you're trying to advance within an overall climate in which there is a, what seems like a politically correct thing to say or do, then you, I think, reduce the set of views that are allowed to be said or feel politically safe to voice. And that really, unfortunately, I think, reduces the quality of analytical rigor and as well as the quality of policy debate. If we're only considering a particular you know, set of viewpoints, and you're discouraging potentially contrary voices, then there's a lot of research on democratic deliberation that suggests you're going to get to worse outcomes as a result. Not that you necessarily need to agree with those contrary viewpoints. And of course, I would say, you know, the state of debate in the United States is far superior in that times in terms of that deliberation than you, you get in China. It's much, much worse there. And I think that there are real concerns about the pernicious effects of 
that kind of echo chamber in Beijing as well. But we're a democracy where we should be, we aspire to be. And so that I think is very troubling and one that we should all strive to protect and nurture a more deliberative conversation. I think you've really done actually an excellent job, you know, in foreign affairs lately of, of trying to nurture that. And then I look forward to seeing more. Thank you for that. We certainly we certainly try in your piece is one important element of that. And another part of your concern relates to innovation and research and the openness of the American academic community, especially when it comes to fears of Chinese espionage and IP theft and technology theft. What are the consequences of a kind of crackdown on the ability of especially kind of Chinese researchers to take part in American scientific research? What worries you there? Well, let me say, first of all, that there are definitely you know, types of, of research that should not involve foreign nationals. Right? There's a whole process of classification and such that erect these kinds of warranted protective measures. But what I'm worried about is the efforts to discourage scientific research and collaboration, that kind of open model of science that has been you know, really crucial to driving the United States as a hub for innovation and, and scientific research for decades. And, you know, the, really the proof is in the pudding, I think, here. Those surveys that I cited in the essay, which suggest that almost half, 40-some percent of early career scientists in physics across all nationalities that have come here to the United States to work, you know, don't think the United States is a welcoming environment any longer for science. And it's much, much worse amongst scientists of Asian descent or of Chinese origin, many of them permanent residents or naturalized citizens, you know, upwards of 60% don't feel safe any longer and are thinking about moving elsewhere. So even if you think of this as a long-term, you know, competition for, you know, technological dominance, if you will, which even though I don't necessarily subscribe to that paradigm, but even if you do, this is an own goal if we don't get it right, because you are the talent piece of that kind of the future of innovation really rests upon our ability to attract and maintain and nurture kind of an open, uh, secure, and supportive environment for science. We'll be back after a short break. Young people of color confront many challenges that deter them from considering, pursuing, and succeeding at careers in international affairs. The authors of the Young Black Leader's Guide to a Successful Career in International Affairs, What the Giants Want You to Know, address these challenges drawing on the experiences of Black American leaders in the field to provide practical advice. Order the book from Lynn Reiner Publishers at reiner.com or Amazon today. That's R-I-E-N-N-E-R.com. Another cost to the focus on competition that you explore in the piece is the diminished ability of the two countries to cooperate or collaborate when it comes to shared challenges, you know, climate change probably being the biggest and most important of these. What is the kind of right approach to working together on those kinds of issues, even amid rising tensions and and competition in lots of other areas? What has gone off course when it comes to that kind of collaboration? What I worry is that uh, we will see this sort of escalating spiral of hostility crowding out the space and the resources to address this really fundamentally existential problem of making sure that the world remains habitable for us. And that's in our national interest. But the more that this becomes a military forward competition, the less there will be not only for addressing you know, climate change, but also you know figuring out you know how to address hunger and 
other infectious disease, all the other kind of challenges that don't really have borders. A lot of these concerns are about kind of corrosive, longer-term effects on U.S. policy and U.S. democracy. But you also warn of the risks of a crisis, of escalating tensions, really a rising level of conflict. The area that you focus on is the, the greatest risk of crisis, and I think lots of others would agree with you, especially in the wake of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit a few weeks ago, is, of course, Taiwan. So what worries you about Taiwan? How do you see those dynamics leading to a crisis that could escalate out of control very quickly? I worry a lot about potential crisis over Taiwan. We seem to have narrowly avoided a kinetic crisis following Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August, largely due to the fact that the Biden administration didn't choose a kind of, or nor did Taiwan choose an immediate kind of military response. So China responded militarily, but there was restraint on the the U.S. and Taiwanese side is the the upshot. That's right. That's right. Right. So to to deny them maybe the crisis that maybe some sought in Beijing. But I think the question then remains is how do you bolster the eroded status quo in the Taiwan Strait where, you know, Chinese military aircraft are making daily incursions across that center line as a response to Speaker Pelosi's visit. And that's, uh, you know, I think there's a real concern here that the response when it comes from Taiwan and from the United States, whether that's Taiwan shooting down drones or something else that takes place, that it continues to accelerate this sort of action-reaction spiral where each side taking unilateral actions to respond to what they see as the growing threat of the other side's actions. A lot of the growing tension in the Taiwan Strait seems to have been driven by Beijing. And you know some of that is actions in Hong Kong over the last couple of years. Some of that is growing military activity. What can the United States do to stabilize the situation? Are there steps that the US can take unilaterally that you think would help at least somewhat reduce the risk of that kind of crisis? So I talk about in the piece, the challenge of unilateral actions, particularly ones that seem to be trying to Uh, lower the temperature. Because I think on both sides, and in Washington in particular, I think there's a perception, which I think is, you know, to some extent accurate, that unilateral steps toward restraint will be seen as signs either of weakness or of concession. And so I don't suggest sort of unilateral changes that the United States can do. First of all, I think that some of the primary drivers of, of Beijing's urgency or sense of pessimism are trends on Taiwan, both in terms of demographic trends, kind of generational evolution away from a sense of identification with the mainland, as well as political developments in Beijing and the crackdown in Hong Kong, making any kind of one country, two systems approach pretty much anathema to politically on Taiwan. So there's not, you know, I think a magic wand that the United States could wave But that said, I think that there are ingredients of the framework that has worked for decades that I think still remain very important. The first of those is one China, first of all and foremost, and there are some political candidates in the United States that have suggested that it's time to recognize Taiwan diplomatically. That to me is like the waving their flag in front of the the bull. I mean, that would be a very clear step across China's red lines. And even if you know Beijing is not looking for a fight, I don't doubt for a moment that they would authorize the use of force immediately to combat that. I should say that the second, I think, component is maintaining strategic ambiguity or what is sometimes known as dual deterrence, which is, of course, enhancing deterrence against the use of force by Beijing, but it also means deterring unilateral steps by authorities in Taiwan to change the political status quo in ways that 
move the island further toward independence, de jure independence, or permanent separation. And that's particularly important, I think, in the run-up to the 2024 elections, insofar as political rhetoric on Taiwan has historically, you know, in the 2000s, been a great concern. And, and Washington acted then, I think, responsibly to kind of rein that back in to ensure the kind of stability that has benefited and allowed Taiwan to develop its democratic way of life, despite, you know, the threat of coercion and ultimately military force by Beijing. One of the other byproducts of growing U.S.-China competition that you lay out comes in the context of the war in Ukraine and the Russia-China relationship. You see uh, U.S. actions as really reinforcing the convergence between Moscow and Beijing. Is there anything the U.S. can do, given the current environment, to reduce that convergence, to somewhat complicate that coordination between the two capitals? Or do you see that as an inevitable uh, progression from here? No, I think that the administration has had some success at deterring immediate material assistance, both military and widespread sanctions evasion, by warning of the consequences. And I think that there are elements of the Chinese system that continue to see that continued access to international capital markets and technology is, you know, essential for China's continued modernization and to use Xi Jinping's word, the national rejuvenation. And so There are, I think, limits, first of all, to the sort of so-called no-limits partnership between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. But that said, I think that so long as Chinese analysts and and leaders see no strategic benefits to working with the international community to rein in Russia's aggressive actions, only risks or liabilities to putting distance between Beijing and Moscow, we're not fundamentally going to alter that kind of long-term trajectory. Because I, I do think that there is a real debate inside China as to how close to stand to Russia. But so long as resisting the United States remains kind of the key strategic priority for policymakers inside China, they're going to continue to stay close to Russia. Simply because they see Putin as useful and distracting the U.S. and complicating our task and reinforcing world order. And because if you know the United States and China should come to blows, Beijing is going to want Moscow and Russia to be an important source of support in resisting whatever comes. This, I think, points to what becomes another really challenging question in this debate, especially for I think those who, like you, are warning of the current course of China policy in the U.S., And that comes to this question of what role China should have in shaping the international system. You know, you note in the essay that we're at a moment when the, you know, kind of we're past U.S. unipolarity, the kind of ability of the U.S. to shape the international system, you know, not quite single-handedly, but almost single-handedly is certainly less true than it was a a few decades ago. And that necessarily means that a power like China is going to have some role in determining the course of the international system, the way institutions work, the way international norms work. That's relatively easy to say at a high level, but I think very hard, again, to articulate what kinds of concessions or what that would really mean when it comes to these big questions about the course of global order over the coming years and decades. So when you, you know, say at a somewhat uh, conceptual level that we need to accept that China is going to have a role in shaping the system, what does that mean? I mean, how do we make that space again without sacrificing interests or values that are really kind of core to the American conception of its own security and our sense of, you know, how the world should work. First of all, 
the premise of bringing China into the international system was that the world would be safer with China on the inside rather than the outside. And even as we remain you know, very concerned about what China is doing on the inside, I think it still remains the case that it's better than what China might be doing on the outside without our ability to shape and negotiate really, again, the terms of coexistence inside uh, the international system. And I reread again recently, I think you published a very excellent piece by Stacey Goddard, which makes that case, which is that it's not that China is not going to reshape the rules. That is unfortunately a given. The question is whether or not the world is better with them reshaping or having some input into the rules of the system from the inside rather than writing them on the outside where we are not even a participant. And so I think that the reality is that this is going to happen regardless. And the question is not where should we just make unilateral concessions, but rather how can we negotiate you know, where it is that we would welcome and on what terms would we welcome China's contributions and participation in the multilateral system. For example, you know, the WTO has made progress recently on, you know, COVID vaccines and fishery subsidies. You know, the G20 common framework for debt relief has also, you know, that's another instance in where there was pressure put on China to work within this framework. And that, you know, maybe belatedly, but still is an example of how we can continue to encourage China uh, to work within the system, even as they continue, of course, to hedge their bets by developing uh, alternative structures. So I think really the question is not a matter of expecting that either the United States or China will forego these kind of fit-for-purpose smaller groupings that privilege their interests, but that can we also at the same time invest equal, if not more, effort in kind of reinvigorating these encompassing institutions like the United Nations, like the WTO, like the G20. When you look at the Chinese debate about its role in the world and the relationship with the U.S., how much space is there for, you know, any reasonable discussion of accommodation or cooperation? You know, I guess it's another way of saying if there were changes that you would see as productive on the U.S. side, what would the response from Beijing be like? So I think there's reason to believe that there is at least the possibility that leaders including all the way at the top, would be interested in a more stable relationship. That said, I think that the climate of debate inside China is much, much more nationalistic and hawkish than even that here in the United States in the sense of not creating space for voices of dissent. I mean, it's an authoritarian regime. And so there isn't a kind of vibrant debate about how should China go about conducting its foreign policy. But there are despite that, glimmers of dissent, including the question of how closely China should stand with Russia, you know, following the invasion of Ukraine. And I think that there remain elements inside China that continue to value that kind of openness to international markets, capital. This isn't about political reform, although even there too, those voices may still exist. But I'm not talking about liberals in that sense. But there are still these sort of the economic or technocratic aspects of China that don't want to see the kind of security spiral take over everything because they know that it will be detrimental to you know China's continued economic and technological flourishing. And so there are aspects, I think, of frustration even inside the Chinese foreign ministry with the kind of wolf warrior tone that's been set from the top. I don't think that China knows what it wants in 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, of course, they may have some, you know, some visions, just like we are going to win the 21st century. But what does that even mean? We don't know. They don't know. China has had a long history of crossing the river by feeling for stones. And so figuring out how to shape the environment, this is one thing the administration is very clear about, shape the environment. Well, okay, well, what does that look like? It means, you know, making very clear that China faces a choice that 
escalation, aggression will be met with correspondingly severe costs. But that if China were to moderate its behavior, that we wouldn't use that opportunity to push the envelope further and continue to strangle their aspirations for continued prosperity and growth. And that's what I think the best we can hope for. Again, it's certainly not going to work overnight, but I think that really the only alternative is the kind of continuing spiral toward catastrophe that we're on. It's a really sharp point in the piece, this notion that deterrence doesn't just require making the cost of an action clear. It also involves making clear the benefits of not taking that action. And that the problem with the US policy debate now is we can't talk about those benefits, which I think is a really powerful point in the piece. Lingering a bit on Xi Jinping, who kind of really looms over this discussion from the US perspective, you make the point in the piece that this is not all about Xi Jinping, that the changes in China really preceded him and go beyond him. But we will all be watching the party Congress and in China next month in October, and wondering what that will mean for Chinese policy and for Xi Jinping in the wake of his receiving this third term, presumably. What do you expect to change? Do you see a more hawkish China, more assertive China, more restrained China? Do you think anything will be different once we get past the party Congress? So I'm pretty agnostic on what this will mean. I certainly expect him to get a third term, and, and I expect that he will probably emerge somewhat more secure in power if the projections are accurate. But what that means in terms of China's domestic and international behavior, I think there's a big question mark. It could go in different directions. Because I think it means that with the party Congress behind him, Xi Jinping can afford to take more risks. But those risks don't necessarily need to be you know, using force against Taiwan. That could also be moving away from zero COVID, taking a little bit of a longer view, not requiring that demonstrations of competence or performance or strength in the immediate term. And so that could, I think, also create space for, you know, a somewhat different trajectory. So that, I think, holds out hope that, you know, this isn't, we aren't, you know, destined to face a more aggressive China after the party Congress. Um, But it will, in large part, depend on, you know, the choices that we put on the table. Let's try to end on a relatively optimistic note. You know, you warn in the piece in the introduction, and I'll quote you again here, that, quote, Washington has struggled to define success or even a steady state short of total victory or total defeat that both governments could eventually accept, and that a cost that citizens, businesses, and other stakeholders would be willing to bear. How would you go about defining success? You know, if we can kind of get this right, what is a relatively optimistic trajectory for the US-China relationship and US power in the world as it relates to that competition? Well, I suggested in the essay that if Washington and Moscow could arrive at detente during the Cold War, there's no reason that Beijing and Washington can't do so today. That would, I would say, be the minimum, which is like baby steps to lower the temperature, to begin to engage in more regular and expansive conversations, discussions about what the future of the international system might look like, what are our red lines, what are their red lines, you know, what are the kinds of ways in which we might be prepared to, provided that there is some kind of reciprocity, be willing to bound the competition, set rules of fair play and begin to create an environment in which we are doing a little bit less to act unilaterally and more to be acting within sort of accepted bounds of behavior on both sides. And that, I hope, that kind of movement towards stability, even if it doesn't amount to some grand framework or bar, certainly not a grand bargain. I don't even expect this to necessarily need to last. I would just, I would first of all settle for getting through the next two years, and then the next eight after that, we would have survived what some are calling the most dangerous decade, 
if we arrive at 2030 without having experienced some of these kind of eyeball to eyeball crises, I would say that that is already the beginnings of success. If we can build upon that to kind of a more you know revitalized, reformed international system, that we can start to see progress on those fronts as well. And hopefully in the interim, we will have created the space again, as I said, to make sure that we're doing what we need domestically and internationally to tackle the extremely pressing problem of climate change and whatever the next pandemic might look like. It is a sign of where we are that that is what passes for optimism these days, (laughs) but we'll take it. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us and for the really powerful essay in our current issue, which is called The China Trap. Thank you again. Thanks, Dan. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening.